This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to episode 360 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking. From indie film to studio films, TV, high-end TV, documentary and... Everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to... Royally F them up. In our very... Very humble opinion. Oh, very. <laughs> I feel like it's a moderate, moderately humble opinion. Maybe we, maybe we, yes. Maybe we're justified in having a moderately humble opinion rather than a, a fully humble opinion. We've done enough of these now. Dumb enough of these. Speaking oh. of being dumb, <laughs> what a segue. Yeah. And on this week's episode, we talk about budgeting, money falling through, how you survive that, what it's like producing a movie, what is a producer, and some amazing screenwriting tips. I'm Giles Alderson. This is Dumb Lemoir. Welcome. We have the team behind Dumb Money. Or Dumb Money in my case. Yes, this fantastic film starring Paul Dano, uh, Pete Davidson, Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, America Ferrara, Nick Offerman, Anthony Ramos. Obviously, he's been on the podcast twice. S- Sebastian Stan, Shailene Woodley and Seth Rogen. A rogue of Rogan. You will have seen this film advertised. It is fantastic. Yeah, we loved it. Ha- it. Has, has an incredible, um, incredible marketing campaign. Actually, I'm, I'm sure you've you've seen it. And if you haven't, have a have a little sort of look into it. It's it's quite a good example of unique marketing that fits the style of the film. And the film is a proper David and Goliath tale. Um, Dom will tell you more about that in a minute. But to to let you know, on this week's episode, we have the producer Aaron Ryder who produced The Founder, Arrival, The Prestige, Mud and Memento. We also have the writers, Lauren Shukablum and Rebecca Angelo. And to top it all off, to make this a perfect dumb money threequel that becomes four, is Teddy Schwartzman. Uh, he is the exec producer and CEO of Black Bear Pictures, uh, who not only produced Dumb Money, but he has produced Imitation Game, Ben is Back, All is Lost, and Mudbound. This is a smorgasbord of Hollywood royalty. It, it is. Absolute I mean, delight. Absolutely cram-packed with... I mean, look at the... If you look at the collective credits of these four, I mean, it, it's outrageous. It's absolutely yes. outrageous. 
Uh, Lauren and Rebecca also wrote Orange is the New Black uh, TV series. Which is blumbelievable in its own right. Which is blumbelievable because Lauren is married to um, Blumhouse himself. <laughs> As he's known. <laughs> he's just a he, he part man, part, part house. <laughs> part house. I mean, to be honest, he's built up that much of a horror success story at yeah. Blumhouse that Mr. Jason Blum... Maybe he has become a house. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He can build his own house wherever he likes. So much of a legend he is. So, Dumb Money is based on the book The Antisocial Network. But what is the pitch, Dom? This is the true life story of the GameStop stocks movement and the ensuing hilarity and chaos as everyday investors shorted the major investment firms, led by Roaring Kitty. Boom. So, Dom, who should we start with out of these four amazing guests? Obviously, Lauren and Rebecca were together, but who should we start with? Let's start with Aaron. So we started with Aaron Ryder and we discussed starting out in producing with Christopher Nolan Films. Not a bad person to start with. Um, Mm. How to find the idea and getting hold of that all-important IP. Uh, We also talk about why getting the right team around you is essential. Pitching, what are the key skills to doing that? He also talks about how to cheat one city for another within locations what it's like producing movies and why it's great his words not mine (laughs) it might, might be yours as well yes it might be mine as well um, so yes, Dumb Money is amazing. It's out in cinemas now. Go watch it. Let's mm. dive straight in with Aaron, and then we'll join you on the other side of Aaron to introduce the next guests. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. See you on the other side of this. This is Aaron Ryder, producer of Dumb Money on the Filmmakers Podcast. Enjoy. Hey, guys. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing? Um, I'd be lying. If I told you that I am fresh as a daisy after last night, um, <laughs> I would, I'll be the first to admit we right. stayed out of the lake. Did you? Did oh, you? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. I <laughs> where love where it. are you guys right now? Uh, London. Yeah, both in London. Uh, both here in the boiling heat of the London. I just, I just left there two days ago. Oh, ah, okay. I've, I've been there since June. Amazing. No way. What were you doing over here? I've been there since June because uh, we have a movie that we're actually shooting. I think we're, we're one of the few people that can make film right now. So uh, we've been shooting this movie with this guy, Brett Goldstein. You, you know who Brett Yeah. Yeah. Brett yeah. Goldstein's amazing from uh, Ted Lasso yeah. and yeah, the Super Bob movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He wrote this and is starring in it and uh, asked, us, asked me to come on board and help him put it together. So. It's been nice. I haven't I haven't shot a film in London before. It's been what a great city to live in. Yeah, it is, and a great city to film in as well. You know, the, the, it's all set up for you to be able to do it. And you know, as long as you go through the right permissions and ask the right questions and be nice enough, people are always willing to let you yeah. shoot. It just costs you'd money. You'd think. You'd think. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, costs money. Um, but yeah, we're here to talk about Dumb Money. We, we'll pr- probably bring you back on to talk about that movie another time with Brett. But yeah, Dumb Money. Wow, we really enjoyed this movie. You know, it was yeah. it was a real thrill for us to watch. When did you see it? You just saw it recently? No. Gosh, how long ago, Dom? About three weeks? Yeah, something like that. I'm glad it stuck with you. Yeah, it made a good impression. I mean, it was just, it was just so, so full of energy and, and fun. And it's just that like classic sort of underdog story. Um, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, I, I, the way it in, engages the audience as well, like brings in the sort of the every man and the every woman into the 
into the narrative. Yeah, really exciting. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, no, we did. We did. We both came out of it sort of buzzing by it. I love those stories. I love those type of films. You know, Tetris, another one where it's someone really trying or fighting against the, the system. Or you know, these are the movies I just love. You you feel great coming out of them because it's like, yay! Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> little guy sort of won. You know, yeah. and yeah. it's yeah. I thought it was brilliantly directed, brilliantly well made. It mm. was really fun. Really fun. I, I, I'm not going to disagree. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's on. It, it, it's one of those movies that we we wanted to put it together and trying to talk to the various different studios about how we wanted to make it. And ultimately, mm. what we kept saying was like, we want this movie to resonate with all of those people that were out there on the Reddit boards and the Wall Street bets and all. Like, like if they like it, we felt like that's the core audience. If, yeah. if they embrace it, then we'll do okay with this. Yeah. And that's so tantamount to what you did. It really is evident. So tell us about how it came to you in the first place. Obviously, this is a true story. Um, This is, you know, an amazing cast. This is an amazing team behind it. Brilliant director and Craig Gillespie. When did you come on board? Were you you first on the door? Was it you found the project? Talk us through it. It, it, It's a it's. Funny, you know, this movie, more than anything I can think of, is completely born from the pandemic. What I mean by that is um, it was the height of the pandemic and I was prepping a movie up in Montreal. And this is back in the days where you, if you went into Canada from the, from the States, you had to do a state mandated quarantine 14 days in either like a hotel room or a small apartment. Mm-hmm. And so I was on day two of my quarantine. I think it was January 3rd. And I was losing my mind. I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to get through? You, you couldn't leave. They brought food to you. It was just miserable. So the only portal to the world that I had was the Internet. And I started picking up on all these these things about GameStop, you know, I was like, mm-hmm. they, reading about the news and reading about the insurrection and reading about all this. And, and I'm like, what the hell is GameStop? Why is this happening? Yeah. And so the more I read about it, it was like, oh, my God, this is this is insane. I, I got like really deep into it. Mm-hmm. Got involved on the on the boards as well and started to contribute. And then I just signed a brand new deal with MGM. I, I had a first look deal with them. Nice. And the phone rang and it was the head of the studio. And she goes, are you seeing this GameStop thing? That, that There's a guy named Kevin Ulrich who owns the studio and he thinks that there's a movie here. And I was like, oh my God, what a great phone call to get, by the way. Yes. I was like, absolutely. But I also figured if, if they were seeing it and I was seeing it, then everybody else in Hollywood probably was too. And I realized in that moment, we had to be first. We had to go out, find a piece of IP and just grab this thing and be the first headline and just try to get out in front of the pack. Really. What is the challenges of adapting something that's, that's uh, uh, you know, like a, it's a kind of controversial story. There's There's a lot of big hitters in the financial world involved. Were there any challenges in terms of getting hold of that IP? Oh, my God, yeah. Because what IP? Is it a New York Times article? Is it like, uh, you know, is it one of these, is it a podcast? It, mm-hmm. it, there is so much talk and stuff. But then I heard that Ben Mesrick had a book proposal. Oh. So, man, I, I once I heard that, I was like, oh, I have to find Ben Mesrick. Didn't know him, but I tracked him down and he was in his house in Vermont living a very nice lifestyle. And then I just, I just stalked him from my computer. Of course. Uh, and uh, yeah, basically I got in touch with Ben, found out he had a seven page book proposal. Wow. And it was great. It kind of, you know, what Ben does so well is he does all the research and tries to figure out the narrative. 
and mm-hmm. he writes very, very fast because a lot of his books are ba- based on current events. We didn't even know the end of the story yet. And he had kind of figured out the direction he wanted to take the book. So there were a few other suitors, but I'd somehow convince him that, like, look, if you trust me on this, I think I can get it made because I knew I had the backing of the studio. So we went out there and somehow convinced him and got mm-hmm. it, did a yeah. deal. Yeah. And, and that, man, that was so exciting, just trying to get it and be first. And you heard about the other projects that were happening. And the whole thing took place over three or four days. Wow. Did a deal. And, and somehow we, we, we managed to be the first to the, to the plate, if you will. That's incredible. I love that. And then did you go and find the writers? Did you go and find Lauren um, and Rebecca? I did, as a matter of fact. Yeah, <laughs> we interviewed a few folks, but it took, it took it literally one meeting with Lauren and Rebecca to realize just how smart they were. I'd, re- I'd read another script of theirs, and it was so insane and bold. I'm like, wow, who are these people? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, they have an investigative journalist background. Ah. Uh, they were reporters for the Wall Street Journal. I knew that was going to be helpful. And Look, at the end of the day, they're just, they're excellent writers and mm-hmm. unbelievably beautiful human beings. So if my, if, if I, if to do my job well, I really, if there's a talent that I, I think producers really need to have, it's, it's hiring the right people when you assemble the team. Yes. So you you, you want to hire people that you, you all think the same things are cool, you know? Yes. And so you're, you're trying to, to, to find those kind of people and, and with Lauren and Rebecca, it was yeah, that was a very easy thing to do. Taste is such a overlooked thing in film, uh, and if someone is just you know they've got different experiences in life and they can't connect with something, you're going to be sort of sending the train in two different directions. I always say, man, you want to you want to try to assemble a team where you're all got your arrows pointed in the same direction and none of them at each other. <laughs> yes. Which, Sound very profound, but man, in this town. <laughs> well, it happens all the time. That's the thing. You're so right. You know way more than, than us. But in terms of that, getting people on the same page is really difficult. Someone comes, yeah, everyone wants to do it. But actually, are you trying to make the same film as the other person? And bringing that together is, a, you know, what brilliant producers do. Um, you mentioned there about um, pitching. And you had to pitch to get the IP in a way. And the writers, Rebecca and uh, Lauren, had to pitch a little bit to you to get the job. What do you think works in a pitch? What's the, what things that you got that's why, you know, it, it, you said instantly you knew these two girls after an hour were right. What was it? Not necessarily in this case, but generally. It was, it was a few things. The way I was talking to the studio and the thing that I really wanted was like, I did not want to stand directly in the shadow of those before us, social network and the big short. Yes. I wanted to try to create something that was felt a little bit more punk rock and also felt accessible to, to the everyman. Mm. Right. I mean, the, 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 the goal here wasn't to make a documentary about a short squeeze, you know, or, or, or market manipulation or something. Yeah. The goal here was to make a piece of entertainment because these are everyday people involved in this. Like I said before, trying to service them and make sure they love the film. And if you were able to find people that can talk about it like that in really basic terms, that's a, a huge, huge start and, and make it feel like this is, we understand the challenges because everyone will compare it to the big short, but here's why it's going to be better. And it was that theme of that David and Goliath mm-hmm. theme that's throughout the texture of this everybody kind of talked about that, but the way that specifically Lauren and Rebecca, you know, Whitman's book, were able to find those characters and, and kind of support that theme through them 
that was the the biggest indication that they're they're the hundred percent the right ones. And look, it, it, it takes one conversation with them to realize mm-hmm. how smart they are, and you're you know you're in good hands. But movies get made when that first draft comes in and it's really far along. Like if that first draft comes in and it's like down the field, you're you're probably in great footing. But sometimes movies get made and that first draft comes in and it's it's a little wobbly or out of focus <laughs> and, and then you're in for a long time. So that they, they had a first draft in lightning speed. I think they had it done in, I don't know, three or four months. And when I read it, I was like, you can see the film. And that to me is, that's the biggest leap that we had to, to accomplish. And how, how involved do you like to get in terms of the, the scripting process before maybe like bringing a, a director on in a project? Um, I mean, it sounds like you've, you're very much into the story side of things and you've got a good grasp of what a good idea is. Like, how, how do you kind of approach notes and building those, those sides of the project? It's a great question. I mean, look, I, I, I'm one of those producers where I liked the entire process of, the, of, of making movies. Like I love finding and developing and working on the material. I love building the team, the packaging of the director and the writers and the actors and that sort of thing. The third part of my job is to find the right home for it, whether it be a studio or independently financed. And then the fourth part, truly not a lot of people do this, but I like being there throughout the entire prep, every day on the shoot, through the post-production, the marketing distribution. Like being that person that's there the entire, throughout the entire process of like the connective tissue. I think it makes the movies better because you, you, you know, the answers to the problems because you understand yes. it because you're, you're there. And so, you know, I, I, a lot of, t- yeah. And a lot of times producers, they, they like one part of it. They're really good developing, but they don't like to go away on set or they like being on set, but they're not into the, you know, finance or the, the, the distribution part. Mm. I don't know. I just, I went to film school to be a director and, I realized I talented enough for it, so at least this is I have proximity to talent. Because so. <laughs> that, that's interesting you say that because you did direct, you know, uh, when you started. Get it on? Is that correct? It's your, your comedy. Oh, <laughs> but on, tell tell us uh, why yeah, you're rolling your eyes there. What, because obviously you went to film school. You said there to be a director, and some of our listeners are filmmakers and they want to go make the first film and you did it. And then you've had this amazing career. You know, the list of credits you've had is is incredible, uh, which we've listed at the beginning of this episode is just wonderful, right? So you went technically from making your first film as a director to suddenly producing, you know, some incredible movies, you know, Memento, Donnie Darko off the bat, you know, talk us that journey from... Mud, reminiscence. Yeah. How did it happen for you from, from going from, you know, you rolling your eyes at your first directed gig to, to that? Well, I, you know, I, I, it, it started because I had a, a the fortune of being, uh, having a really talented friend who, um, we, I was started as an assistant at Working Title Films with a woman named Emma Thomas. Oh, of course. And, we love Emma. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, we kind of were always together. And then her and her, she brought her dumb boyfriend over from London. Ah, her dumb boyfriend. And, yeah. And, okay. Yeah. And they moved <laughs> in an apartment across the way from us, from, from my, uh, my girlfriend and I at the time. And um, they moved in and I had a film that I was making. And and he was like, oh, I'm making a film too. I was like, oh, of course, uh, of course you are. <laughs> so uh, I showed him my wildly mediocre movie, and yeah. he showed me his. And I never wanted to direct again. I was like, what? 
<laughs> so right. he's, it was following and mm-hmm. uh and and my film is um one that's amazing that you could find on the internet um but, uh, <laughs> and just for our listeners so we're all clear this is christopher nolan uh by the way um who did direct <laughs> memento which is what you exec produced so how did how did you like say it's amazing like emma thomas and christopher nolan they've got this amazing career and obviously when they start we all start the same page and you want to work with people you like and on the same page with is that how it happened with memento is that how you got involved yeah i mean basically i got a job at a a small company that wanted to finance movies and they asked me um to find them films and you know i I wildly exaggerated about my (laughs) producing prowess i never but i just was i remember they asked me like um so have you produced things before? I was like, of course. Have you seen, you know, the big Lebowski? <laughs> have you seen The Godfather? Have you seen movies? <laughs> I didn't say produced it. I just asked them, have they seen it? You know, <laughs> clever use of words. That's amazing. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, 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 I had a few fun things where I, I mistakenly did. A, I didn't know what I was doing. I was 25, 26 years old. And I bought the international rights almost by mistake to American Pie with their, with these this money. And uh, everybody thought it was going to be a disaster, and it turned yes, out it wasn't. it wasn't. So that at least allowed me to have a little bit of trust with the this new mm. financing entity. And they turned around and said, well, what do you want to do next? And the only thing that I had was this script that mm. Chris had been writing. and I'd, And I was like, this is what I want to do. This is the guy. I'm, I'm, I just felt like, you know, it's not so hard to recognize the talent of him. He's he's a pretty smart guy, and so, um, you know, I was like, this is this is what I want to do, and they they let me wow. they let me do it. Was it <laughs> so, was it an immediate thing where you know everyone read that script and they were like, this is absolutely incredible, or was it actually like you had to fight quite hard as a producer because I mean it is quite an abstract film i mean it's one of the best films like i've ever seen but it's it is a, you know to pitch that as a fresh idea i can imagine there being some pushback maybe with you know like oh, a sure. minded in- memento yeah 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 it, look it was it was a complicated script to read because you know you have the black and white sequences going backwards and the, the you know it was like complicated to understand the structure and to get mm. it and figure it out and people don't always you know I'll be honest with you, agents and a lot of people don't always pay attention to scripts. They read dialogue sometimes if yes. they, or the coverage. And so it's complicated. But every now and then you'll find people that really can recognize it. And and we had a – it was – you know, because we had financing, it wasn't that complicated. We were able to make it for the amount of money they're willing to give us. And it was put together through foreign sales from a, a fellow named Patrick Waksberger, who I, I, I say all the time I wouldn't have a career if not for Patrick. And um, – we were able to put it together. The hard part of Memento was after we made the film, no one wanted it. Like every studio saw it and every studio passed with the exception, I think of one made an incredibly low ball offer. Wow. And we ended up self-distributing the movie. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. It, it was, it, was it really is wild. ludicrous. Wow. Um, but how did it get the success it did by self-distribution then? Did you, I mean, talk us a little bit through that if you don't mind, because that's fascinating. We knew we had something and everybody had passed. We couldn't get it into any film festivals. Eventually mm-hmm. we got it into Venice and we went there with the film for the first time, which is terrifying. And, and the audiences really responded. And um, the financiers who were clearly you know, entrepreneurial and, and maybe a little crazy 
said, why don't we just distribute it ourselves? We hired a fellow named Bob Bernie to help us mm -hmm. distribute the film. And we became a, a, a U.S. distributor and put it out in, in movie theaters. It was, I think, probably one of the highest grossing films that oh, year for independent film. Wonderful. And it found its champions. You know, we had people like Soderbergh and Elvis Mitchell and really great people who responded and talked about it. It was just one of those films that just cracked at the right time. Mm. And, and it, it, by the way, it's not a bad film, yeah. but it, 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 terrible. <laughs> it, we allowed the audience to work out. Yes. Yeah. Do you think you could do that now? What you did? Oh God, no. Right, yeah. Like, we didn't know what we were doing. We are 20, <laughs> we're 20, 27 years old or whatever. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. So, <laughs> If we'd known what we were doing, we would have fucked it all up. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. You make memento. You partner up with Chris Nevin. <laughs> yes. I, I never, I never said I was smart. I just, I, I got lucky. I, I started this. I got lucky having really talented friends. Mm. Do you think you learned quite a lot from a, a creative um, standpoint from some working with with Chris Nolan and and because I mean some of the other projects that you went into after that really good stories. I mean, like yes. you know, do you feel like you had an innate understanding of what an amazing script was or, or was it partnering up with with chris that sort of had a, an impact yeah and emma thomas as well and yes chris definitely. and emma and they remain some of some some of our closest friends and you know we we were very close chris nolan jonah nolan emma thomas we are all they're, they're as close to families that that i have mm. and you know, I think like all of us, the, the people that we grew up with, you know, first starting our adult lives and you, you relate to and you, you have common interests with, those are the ones that are so, you know, they help you formulate who you are, what your taste is, because you like the same things and you're you're talking about the same things and you argue about the the, the same things. And, and that was certainly the case. And yeah, I, I, I'm very lucky to have had those really smart people. But I also think the thing that really that was a commonality for us is the our love of movies you know and and those in the kind of movies and i remember one of the first things that chris and i ever talked about was we'd gone and see saw the movie heat mm -hmm. uh separately one day and i came back and said I saw this movie and you know it, we talked about it for hours and those kind of films those they used to be called mid-level films with great directors and movie stars you know 30 to 40 to 50 million dollar movies that we all loved heat silence of the lambs beverly hills cop like those films yep. that we we love those and they're not they're not making enough of those today that's why i think the money is is working is because it kind of fits that that commercially viable yet smart movie mm -hmm. and, and i i think that's one of the things that we all responded to when we were younger trying to figure out what kind of movies you're going to make. And, you know, I, I, I think I, I kind of stayed more in, in the independent side and Chris, I'm a little worried about him. I hope he does. All right. Yeah. But... You never know with him. He might just, <laughs> he, might, he, he might, he might, he might make it. He might make it. Yeah, exactly. I hope he knows I'm here for him. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get onto the, the casting of, of Dumb Money as I sort of bring it back to that? Like, uh, you know, you've got the amazing writers, you've got a great script. How did you uh, get the incredible cast on board? Um, you know, look, I'll be honest with you. A lot of it is the the uh, relationships Craig had with a lot of the actors. You know, he had just worked with with Seth. We knew it was going to be on in this big ensemble, and we have to start someplace. And so there were four key roles that we felt like, okay, where what are we going to do here? The first role we had to cast was was Keith, and yeah. there was only ever one name, which is Paul Dana. We, we he just Craig and Bo wanted to work with them. 
I've been a fan for years and it just felt like he he could be Keith and he hadn't seen Paul in a role like this before. So that was like really important to us. He'd just worked with Seth. He'd just worked with, mm-hmm. well, he always works with Sebastian Stan, but they'd worked together in Pam and Tommy as well. And so they, that, that, those relationships were, were certainly helpful. And then once it started to kind of gather momentum, our, our great casting director, Mary Renault, she really started helping us put together this cast. Look, a lot of it were, were relationships. Both both Craig and I had worked with Nick Offerman. Right. I had just worked with Shailene Woodley. And I, we called personally and like, yeah. hey, could you? Oh, she's yeah, incredible. Yeah, she's so good. Oh, she's she's awesome. I, I adore her. And I, I think she's I, I think she's got a very like she's making even better and better films and better decisions, the kind of movies she's making mm. as she as her career goes on. And so she's awesome. But yeah, the the cool thing about the way this film came together is each actor worked for a limited period of time. Like Paul Dano was on for two weeks and Pete David was on for three or four days, I think, you know? And so we kind of had these little spurts where we're making a bunch of different movies mm. and none of the actors intersected. Of course. Cause they didn't. Yeah. And that's what was fascinating about the movie. Cause you felt that they were because you kept coming back to them and seeing them and they were watching each other or certainly they're all watching Paul Dano's character. And that made you feel like they were, it was very connected and they probably were in the same rooms, but you're so right. Probably made a load of brilliant shorts. You know what I mean? In that sense, but it didn't feel that way. It never once felt like it was disconnected. It felt really connected. And that's a testament to everyone who made it, I suppose. But hey, it's good to hear. And that's one of the things that's so disappointing about being up here in Toronto at the film festival. It was the first opportunity we were going to have where you actually have all the actors together. Cause they've, they were never all, they've never, some of them never met, you know? We were never all together. That's mm. a little disappointing. It is to not have that. Yeah, it's disappointing. But yeah, like I say, the cast is incredible. How was it shooting it then? Because obviously there's a lot to get around. There's a lot of different locations and they've all, some of them have got look incredible. Um, and you've got the whole, the wonderful shot where um, Seth Rogen's character and he's, he's just in one house and it all kind of kicks off and then you follow him back through all the day yeah. and then he ends up <laughs> yeah. going to his other house, whatever it is, his other house, his office. It's fantastic. But, you know, it was a lot of thought. Talk us through... For our listeners as well, sure. issues on producing a movie like this and the things that you well, learned, perhaps. Sure. I mean, look, every movie, you first like, okay, where are we going to shoot it? We always wanted to try to shoot it in Los Angeles, but mm. it's more expensive. It's harder. And they don't have quite the, the, the incentive programs that other states have. Yeah. So and because the movie takes place all over the country, you need some place that's going to be versatile and going to have many looks to it. It could be a, the north, you know, the northeast, and it could also be Miami because we obviously couldn't afford to go to all those places. No. So you you try to find some place that is going to be you know diverse enough that it will sell as multiple places. And when I talk about diversity, where else but New Jersey mm-hmm. would you want to shoot a movie? Right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah, we ended up in New Jersey for the most part of the shoot. We always knew we we're going to have to do New Jersey and someplace, whether it be Miami. But we, what we decided was, and a lot of it was based on Seth's schedule, is we we're going to have to do some work in Los Angeles to double for Miami. Right. Get the palm trees okay. in, the, in the sunshine. So we we made New Jersey look like Texas and Detroit and Boston and and some of Miami as well. Wow. Okay. It worked. It totally came across. Um yeah, yeah, I didn't I I just presumed you would have moved around as well. That's that's really interesting. Uh, it it I it, it's too hard to move around. It, it's it just makes sense to try to keep as much in one place as you can to try to get as much movie as you can. And we shot this movie so fast. I think it was a 31-day shoot. Wow. 
Yeah, Craig Gillespie is a very caffeinated director. He is. <laughs> he, he moves. Well. I'm not sure if you remember this, but how many unit moves are you doing on a movie like this? How 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 many times are you having to move in a day? How many locations are, are you sort of working on this? It'd be interesting to know the sort of logistics side of it. It wasn't as bad as you think. Craig is such a he, he's such a seasoned director. He's he's very good at realizing as a producer as well of how important it is to try to get as much done in one place. You're not spending all your time in vans moving all over the yeah. place. Yeah. So rarely did we have to like in the middle of the day, shoot in one place and then move. I, that's just never fun. Like what I'm dealing with in the Brett Goldstein movie, we have a different location every day and it's so yeah. hard because it's constantly trying to catch up with yourself. Mm-hmm. I always say, think of it like, you remember the cartoon where they're laying down the, the railroad tracks as they're on the tracks <laughs> yes, driving. It feels yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, but this was yeah. this is a testament to a seasoned director who understands the importance of trying to utilize as much as he can in one dire- in one location. Good question, though. Great. Um, and Dom, last question because I think we've got to wrap up with you. Sadly, now, Aaron, because we could talk for ages. But... Yeah. If if you could. If you could um, give us any advice maybe to aspiring producers uh, that are trying to either make their first big feature or move up into the world, maybe something you've learned that you would teach yourself going back in time. Um, first off, you guys have great questions. I, I hope you I hope you all yeah. have me back. I could do this with you all for, you know, we should <laughs> do it anytime. over years. You would love to. But, um, uh, so, um Look, it's it's a couple things. It's it kind of goes back to what I was saying, where I, I feel like as a producer, we have a responsibility to to definitely not just get films made, but films that that are going to resonate with audiences and kind of pay attention to the fact that, like for the last couple of years, I believe we've been making very precious films that no one has a whole lot of interest in seeing. And as you can tell by the, and maybe that's a result of the pandemic and a rush to get things made quickly we've put out a bunch of movies that I just feel like audiences are not, they're not intrigued by and they're not going to see theatrically. So to support the theatrical experience, I feel like we have to be making things that are entertaining, that are going to give them a reason to come out and, and they don't always have to be fun, but they have to be well-made and well-crafted and it can't just be made because you have a movie star in it and it can't just be made because you can turn on your television and watch, you know, whatever new action piece that's on Netflix. So I feel like we have a, a responsibility to make some better films. And the second part of that, you know, as far as producers go, I think you got to be present. It's like what I'm saying, like, do all of it. Get involved and be there as much as you can because you, the directors and financiers and studios and actors, they need partners and they need people that are going to be there to help and be part of the process, not just go to the premiere and, and try to look cool. I love it. Aaron Ryder, thank you so much for your time. Uh, definitely go out and see Dumb Money. And, and I'd, I'd also encourage you to, to look at some of your incredible back catalogue, like Reminiscence, Mud, uh, you know, all of the original ones. There's so many amazing movies that you've done. But right now, Arrival. go see Dumb Money. Yeah, The Founder, Prestige. The list goes on, Aaron. Literally, you're a hero to People us. even talk about Hamlet 2. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, Hamlet 2, of course. <laughs> I, I, was, well, I was going to mention Hamlet 2. I thought, I, it's up to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, well done. Congrats. Have fun in Toronto. And uh, yeah, good luck with the release. And um, we'll look forward to seeing you for a beer soon. Yeah, you guys are awesome. Take care, y'all. Cheers, yeah. Aaron. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. So there we have it. That was Aaron Ryder. How amazing was that? Was one hell of a ride. <laughs> really, really was. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it, to to think that 
To think that there were that there was a time. I mean, that that's one of the most exciting bits about the chat is there was a time when Christopher Nolan was an indie filmmaker who made a made a film over some weekend with a couple of friends, and mm. he's 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 there. He, he's with his producing partner yeah, Emma and you know Aaron's there he's producing <laughs> I mean you know these are these are like the beginnings of dynasties in the film world uh, yes. and it's fascinating seeing how that all comes together yeah I think I think that was so wonderful to hear it was yeah. so delightful to sort of know that actually we're in the same boat we all start somewhere we've all got a build up from the ground up and isn't it amazing and how Memento got made as well I, I thought it was really interesting Aaron was what a tremendous guest. Tremendous. Yeah. Monumentous. Yes, monumentous. Let's go on to our next <laughs> uh, guest in the order. Should we have the writers, Dom? We shall. Should we have Lauren Schukerblum and yep. Rebecca Angelo? Yeah, we shall. We shall. All right. What did we dive into with these legends? Well, we discussed some of the key issues in the middle of the writers' strike and why coming together is important. Because back when we recorded this, we were deep in the battlegrounds of the WGA strike. Um, and at this time, we know now that it's been resolved, which is which is fantastic news. Yeah, so all of you who, who might not be aware of this, and I'm sure you are, that a deal has been struck. It hasn't been signed yet as of recording this podcast, mm. um, but it sounds good. It sounds like the writer's representatives are happy with, and the AMTPS, as we should call them, because they're a studio system, not producers, um, are agreeing to as well. So fingers crossed that happens. So as Dom said, we did talk to Rebecca and Lauren before the strike was concluded so they were wearing their t-shirts they were on the picket line but we still managed to talk about how they wrote it which is fantastic and amazing then they also mentioned um how why you should know everything first before you start putting pen to paper different writing techniques and they also talk about their films that didn't get made Mm. they lastly discuss collaborating in the co-writing process and making stories that the every man or every woman can identify with, just like in Dumb Money. So here we go. This is Lauren Schuchabloom and Rebecca Angelo. What should they do, John? What should they do, Dom? <laughs> John. <laughs> I'm sure you've done the Jomma thing before. I have. I've tried to cut it out, but I can't cause it just sounds There's no like... silent J in my name. <laughs> it's the knock after all these years. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, they should probably listen to the episode and go watch the movie, but but yeah, that, probably that. That'll do. All right, yeah. here we go. Enjoy. Hey, yeah. Hello. Hello. How you guys doing? Yeah, a little deer in headlight. Okay. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Excellent. Pleasure to meet you both. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat to us on the Filmmakers Podcast. Thank the time of course we're excited very excited we love this film we love the writing of it we love the backwards and forwards the way you weaved all the characters in was so clever and so special it just was magnificent must have been must have been so difficult and and i want to get to that but we wanted to say hello to you first uh, and just sort of introduce you to the podcast this is dom i'm giles hello hello Hello, Giles. Hello, hello. You got very cool matching outfits there. Is that? Oh, yes, yeah, so we're wearing our WGA yes. strong shirt. Yeah, oh, good so for you. Able to be here as executive. Ah, cool, nice. But yeah. we are yeah. and with our union. Yeah, yeah I yeah. love that. I love that. So, how much can we talk about the screenwriting then side of it? We can talk about we can yeah. Spend. We can talk about anything, and we're actually we're excited to have this platform because it's really giving us an opportunity to amplify what our union is talking about right now because yes. the. The story of the movie is about collective action. It's about people recognizing that a system is broken mm-hmm. and coming 
together and 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 beginning to change it and that's yeah. exactly what we're doing in and it's about a fight for transparency whether it's on wall street or on hollywood and that's what the wga is is and we are fighting for yes which is absolutely and we've done an episode about it as well obviously at the you know in the uk we have equity it is different but yeah. we're standing strong with it as well we agree with it we believe in what's happening we really want this to move forward as quickly as possible and get to yeah, some totally. resolution yes uh, as soon as possible yeah how how is it there at the moment with that then why don't we start talking about that if you'd like to um about how that has affected you especially like you said this is a platform now to talk about it but at the same time it is is always difficult because you know you, yeah you... and it's sad that our cast is not here oh, you it's know? so sad i know obviously what they're fighting for is like more important than any you know one movie but mm-hmm. you got first time at tiff so it I think it feels very different here yeah. to many people, but we don't know the difference. It's a little bit of a ghost town first from festival. what we hear. Yes, the red yeah. carpet was very empty. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that's, also, I mean, that's also an important symbol, right? Yeah. You have to, yeah. That's how things change. Yeah. Yes. And also, it, it's it's kind of nice to, in a in a only nice thing about this is to shine a spotlight on the people who often don't get the spotlight with the producers the screenwriters etc it's kind of there is something nice for us because this is what we do we love to talk this podcast is about talking to producers and screenwriters and it's really nice that suddenly everyone else is going okay well if we can't have actors we'll we'll do that side as well and we're like no this is what we normally do we love talking you know that's what it's about <laughs> actors are yeah. great we love them but uh, and you yeah. two had such unbelievably high praise from the the two producers that we've just had before Oh, well. that's so, uh, so, so yes, yeah. I mean, it all, it all kept coming back to you. <laughs> it did. It did, didn't it? How did you How did you get involved in this in the first place? How did you two both end up? Well, going going this, yes, going back to that, I think we're endlessly on this campaign to expand the role of writer. <laughs> yeah. They just writers deserve so much more credit. Apparently, they talk credit. about us because we will not go away. <laughs> Good for you. It's just not being on every call. Oh, we were yeah. at all the test screenings, uh-huh. we were editing. <laughs> just wouldn't go away. They could get rid of you. <laughs> Believe in the message of this movie. Yeah. And so yes. we're just now fighting for it and also making sure the movie is accepted. Like everyone else involved in the production, we took a pay cut <laughs> in order to make this happen because this is not a big streamer movie. This is a movie that was based right, on a. Yeah, and we did it because we really believe in it, um, and that's why we're here to talk about it too. We would like to be on the picket lines, and we will go back to the picket lines shortly. But this is important. It, it is. Um, what's what's it like on the picket lines at the moment? What's the feeling with everyone and everything? You know, yeah. I think there's like there's this smug attitude of they will break, right? And we saw it in our movie too. This mm-hmm. kind ending view from the the top guys that that you know it'll all break up and it'll all go away and this will be over soon and you know in our movie they held and we are so proud that our unit held too and so that i think there is a real conviction um and a real defiance and a determination because we know that the moment is now that we cannot blink and we cannot break mm-hmm. um and so i as hard as it is and as awful as it is for everyone to be out of work i mean this is a miserable difficult time in that regard mm-hmm. i think the clarity is absolutely there and the conviction remains that now is the time for this fight and if we don't do it now we will mm-hmm. miss our moment yeah it's an existential fight. it's got such a wide-reaching effect as well i mean there's so much crew in the uk yeah, yeah. i'm working at the moment as well 
Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, the American industry, like we don't realize, but even some of the British projects are so linked to America. And all of this has such a, a big effect and, yeah, and it really does need to have a solution. There's like a domino effect, but there is a real endurance. I think people were like bummed when then we had our Labor Day holiday the other mm-hmm. week that there'd be no picketing for three days. Yeah. Right. And there's a kind of endurance that you know, I think it's why we were drawn to this project because of Keith Gill and what an extraordinary character he is. Mm-hmm. Like he's this real hero who's not seeking fame or fortune. And is also an incredible example of endurance and fortitude and holding. Yeah. And we talk sometimes about this kind of fancy concept of collective effervescence from the philosopher Emile Durkheim, that there is some kind of extra electricity that happens when we all come together. I mean, mm-hmm. as you know, we see it at Swift concerts, we see it at Barbon, and we see it on the picket yes. lines, and we see it in this film, that people are longing for that communal experience, mm-hmm. and that it satisfies something deep and profound in us to join together. It's a time of such isolation, isolation such loneliness, I mean, it was never greater than it was during the pandemic, but even now, and I think we're seeing these movements everywhere. We see social justice movements and we're seeing these, these, it, it is, it is a moment where people are coming together and saying enough is enough. The world needs to be more fair. And it's part of why we were drawn to this project also was that it's not, you know, obviously people came to us as like former Wall Street Journal reporters, like here's a financial story, mm-hmm. but it's actually about something greater than money. It's not, you know, and, and it's too narrow to look at the film in terms of like who made money and who lost money on games stuff mm. people actually would offer any amount of money to be part of this movement yeah and that's what we found for interviewing people so how did you end up actually working the process of going from the idea you know this brilliant idea this this true story absolutely fascinating you've done all the research how do you actually go into the nuts and bolts of writing this like what is your your process did you do a treatment did you start to put together bullet points did you points did you sort of jump into the first draft oh yeah oh, all, the all the bullet points all the <laughs> An outline for the studio and their only note was like make it younger like, yeah age down the characters. <laughs> yeah wow. which is not i mean it was a good note because it was a we had some young people they wanted more young people they were probably right like the we we did our best to capture a diverse array of of stories and motivations and outcomes for people um in the movement but it is a very useful movement um and and exciting and fun in that way that we we, our philosophy of writing a true story is that we shouldn't make up anything that we don't have to. So it's our job to know everything before we begin the process of turning a true story into a movie. Mm-hmm. So we scour the message boards. We talk to retail traders. We talk to hedge fund guys. We tried to put ourselves behind the eyes of all the major players in this. And then we turned it into a movie. So that meant like probing their interiority, figuring out what made them tick, understanding the emotional story, the emotional journey that they were on beyond just the, the nuts and bolts of the stocks rally. There was also a huge structural challenge in writing this screenplay, which we were excited mm-hmm. about. But it's like our carry. So we had, we knew we wanted to do an ensemble approach because this is a story of a movement. It's not about just one person. As interesting as Keith Gill is, like I felt like we had to have everyone to really to understand Keith Gill. You need to see why people are. But wrong. our characters, we realized, we're like, okay, they've never met. <laughs> they're not going to meet. Mm-hmm. Like they don't know each other. Yeah. And how do you movie about you know you know what, what examples are there of that? None. So mm-hmm. this script was this very complicated lattice work that was sort of like a French braid where we knew we had to have scenes, you know, the, the outs of the scenes had to talk to the beginnings of other scenes. Yeah, you're jamming into the next scene all the time because these characters are in dialogue with each other, even if they don't know each so other. Had- they're in conflict, they're in community, and it's a it's a heightened emotional experience. So you need to have them kind of like 
one person asks a question and the other person answers it. One person says one thing and another person says the opposite. And they're kind of in, they're having a dialogue. fight, even though they don't know they're having a fight. Or we have characters who are both doing the same action, right? Like you have Seth Rogen running and Paul Dano is running and one runs better than the other, right? <laughs> yeah. So they're not on the same track, but but in your mind, you kind of connect. That's a race I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Um, we also wanted to have those like operatic highs you see in like more traditional movies, right? Like a you know old fashioned western gunfight or face off between the hero and the villain. And so we were excited when we happened on this moment where you have Seth Rogen is looking into his computer. He's watching a video of Paul Dano like reaching for a cat, and he makes eye contact, and he's like, "Wait, who is?" This? Right. Yeah. That's, like, that's like the old Western duel moment where you feel like they're each about to draw their weapons mm. to set up the whole And they're happening through a screen, but there's that same like emotion and energy yeah. happening. And so it was a lot, you know, we had written movies like this. So we felt like we had been training for a marathon when this project came along. Yeah, mm. we've had a long interest internet populism um and as you know one of the most important if not the most important forces shaping our world and also the least cinematic i mean it's like what you feel when you're on the internet is so big and what you see is so small and bland Mm -hmm. so we have spent a lot of time thinking about how to make that visual, how to make it dramatic and cinematic. And, you know, there are, there's a whole language of that that's worked into this movie that uses, that relies heavily on music as a uniting force, bringing an army together, Um, memes and shorthand and jokes and catchphrases. If he's in, I'm in, and the apes in our words, you know, that stuff really powerful unifying force right and we also felt like cinema has the potential we feel like it has the potential to kind of challenge what like what, what the internet has done to the way that we see and don't see people so we have scenes where you have these hedge fund guys like talking about gamestop as a company we should just burn to the ground and it's kind of worthless and we have those words overlaid you know a scene of anthony ramos working at the store, taking pride in his job. You know, yeah, loving this community, yes. even if he doesn't have the ownership you know. structure. And by the same stuff. token, yeah. we have our retail players reading this online screed about how these, you know, hedge fund assholes are, you know, on their yachts doing their hookers blow. And, <laughs> and actually see, they're having like a Shabbat dinner and reading to their yeah, son. Yeah, we, see, we see Seth Rogen, like, yeah, yeah. sitting in bed with his son, his wife, and washing his own dishes. Yes. Yeah, looking at the social media and the internet has collapsed our view of our opponents or our enemies. We shrink them down into these two-dimensional caricatures where the reality is always so much more complex. There are no mustache-twirling villains in this story. There are people who are not seeing each other, who are not seeing things, who are maybe oblivious or maybe cold. You know, maybe they're too focused on on their bank accounts um, and not focused enough on the human consequences of their actions. But nobody wants suffering. It's, um, and, it, it was, not and it's so true. You did. We love these characters. We we fell in love with their each one of them, and we really cared about America Ferrara's character and Anthony Ramos's character, and uh, and the others as well that you placed in there. And you gave them all these wonderful backstories. How much of Ben? Um, I'm going to hope I pronounce this right. Mesrich. Mesrich. Mesrich is book was in there because I felt like you just went into this wonderful world and pulled out these characters. Was any of these characters in there in the first place or would you, were you, I mean, you mentioned you were just, you know, delving into so much research and finding your own sort of characters and words around that anyway. Yeah. But, America Ferrer's character is from Ben's book. from Ben's book. Um, 
Yeah. And yeah. We, um, you know, we, we also did a lot of interviews. So we took some characteristics from people we interviewed and gave them to her. Yeah. So it was inspired by a character named Kim that Ben depicts, but, but we deviate from that character in a few key ways just to make her a little bit more representative and to get inside of her head and her heart a little bit more. I think America did an unbelievable oh, job. She's brilliant. Brilliant. And really standing her longing um, and why she small and how this movement helped her achieve maybe not a financial windfall, but something that perhaps to her was even more valuable. Um, so, so that we built off of a character that Ben, um, Ben, Ben wrote in his book. Um, and then the rest of them are amalgamations of people we interviewed and stories we read online. Um, and yeah. So and the Anthony Ramos and the GameStop story is, you know, again, based on, all those things. And it felt like a great way to kind of take us into the store itself because, you know, some people might know the store from, you know, their childhoods, yeah. but others, I think, kind of understanding why is this place, you know, so powerful in everyone's mind and why is it worth kind of saving? Because it's not just any, it, it's not a coincidence, right? It, it doesn't just happen to be. Mm-hmm. You know, people aren't doing this for, I don't know, for, I, I struggle to think of another brand, but, yes. but it, it, something Hurts. about, yeah, so exactly. Something about GameStop and the nostalgia of that made this practice of shorting personal mm. for a lot of people. Like you're not just going after a distressed asset. Yes. You're going after a my childhood. Mm. And even though that's been it's like saving blockbuster in a way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to make fun of because, yeah, they've made a bunch of bad business decisions and their various like rotating cast of private equity owners have effed the company possibly beyond repair. Mm-hmm. But um, still, like you are you are coming after something that was a meaningful place for me. Right. And you're also hitting someone when they're down. Right. I think it's no accident that people were like, wait, what is shorting during the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Because at the time when everyone was suffering, every you know, no one could walk into any store. It's the idea of then like hitting these companies at this really terrible moment felt particularly galling to people. Yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And that, and it comes across so well. Yeah, and also doesn't it? Go finding on, go on. hope, I guess, and, and being able to actually go take something terrible out of this time when everyone's stuck at home 
uh, and, yeah. and almost fight back against the oppression because you know everyone feels oppressed in that in that time. You know, it is. It's a, it just it's just a very lonely, like isolating time. We talk about the movie as really being about value, um, our value system as a people, and who determines value in a society. Because far too often we just let the the people at the very top determine the value of everything. The way you know. Plotkin tried to determine the value of GameStop stock. And this is a movement where, we, where where people came together and said, no, we determine the value of that company. We determine the value of a share of that stock, of uh, the labor of a worker at that company, and and of this movement and of our time and energy. Right. I see that the downside of capitalism. Yeah. Is this. Yeah. And that's why it's no accident to us that like, there are all these films, ours included, that are investigating our relationship to capitalism You know, in terms of air and the uh, Blackberry, Blackberry movie. and the GDP so movie. Yeah. Yes, it's, yeah. It's of the moment when these like labor movements are roiling. Yes, like, it's totally at the moment. And it's, I thought to myself maybe two, three years ago, I'm never going to want to watch a movie where people have masks on. And in this movie, I was totally fine with it because obviously it's that's when it happened. And I it didn't bother me. And it, it was fascinating. To, it sort of gave me this sort of recollection of have you know the masks on people's chins and lift, when to lift it up. And yeah. obviously yeah. you had that yeah. in there in the GameStop shop, him saying, you know, Dane DeHaan's character, put it back on on the mask and all that sort of good <laughs> stuff. It was just, and, yeah. Shorthand yes. for like, oppressor and oppressed, right? Yeah. Who during that time was being told to put the mask up over their nose and who was walking freely through their their beachfront mansion without having to worry at all about breathing in your 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 smelly yes. breath for yes. you know, <laughs> it felt like a very scary and like risky choice to make on set it's like yes. what this just turns people off but also you have and a, also you have like data on your that was craig had that vision and he was really really right um, and we were like our Sure. Yeah, we but, might be able to hear what they're saying. Because also, it's part right. is like you can't disentangle the story from the pandemic. It's a perfect storm, yeah. and it's like it, you know, it's just it is. It's a movie about the pandemic. We never yeah. really say COVID in the movie, but it is so profoundly of that yes. era. Um, How do you go about like what what are the different flavors that you bring in your collaboration in terms of like what you bring to the writing and what you bring to the writing? You know, how how do you sort of approach a draft of the script? Yeah, Yeah. we always say like the best idea is between us. And like somewhere in the air between us. And we definitely have like a 24-7 writer's room going. Yeah. I think, you know, we're always in dialogue. I live in LA. Gentle and lovely term (laughs) what we're in. Fighting. It's often, yeah, yeah. It's a very safe mm-hmm. place to, true. you know, sometimes be your best self and sometimes be your worst self. Yeah, everyone's like, "Oh, do you guys fight?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah that idea is <laughs> rubbish. How dare you?" And then, Rebecca's <laughs> in New York and I'm in LA, so also with the time difference, we clearly one of us is working at all times. We've been a writing partnership for eleven years okay. and and are very like profoundly bonded and so that Lauren can say, I hate mm. that to me. And I'm just like, okay, great. We always say we have like, you know, different but complementary skill sets. And there's a lot of trust of certain things. Um if yeah. Rebecca is like, that word is off. I will trust her on that. Yeah. It tends to be the smaller it is, the more it's mine. And the bigger it is, the more it's hers. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Lauren, I mean Lauren small and bigger people when it comes to think 
screen murder is so um can be so disheartening and depleting. It's such a dramatic business and the answer so often is no and things die so on often, your right? line all, all the, the time. time and it can be heartbreaking. And nothing is ever made. And so I think we always say in a partnership that the, the highs are higher but the lows, more importantly, the lows are less low. And and often the lows are funny um, when you're laughing with somebody else. So. Yes, I think yes. it's been able, we've seen, I mean, everything is cumulative. I mean, we've had, you know, we're on TV show, but this is our first film that's been made. We've sold many, we've many sold movies. And written so many We've been told many movies. movies are getting made and they don't. Yeah. Um, but I think as a partnership, you're able to see how everything leads to something else. Yeah. And I mean, this film, like, yes, we wrote it quick fast, but we actually have been writing versions of this. It really, those 11 years of writing, that's what yeah. really learned. The projects that died were reborn in various forms as, as, this. as this movie. And it's, we've, we've been like training to write this movie for a decade. Yeah. The, and and to, your, to your other question about the difference between TV and film, yeah, it's I, I, we were staff writers on somebody else's vision. Um, and we, that was a tremendous experience that gave us a lot. I mean, one great thing we'll say about Genji Cohan, who created Orange is the New Black, is that she had the courage to write from points of view that are not her own, mm-hmm. um, not her lived experience. And that is to some degree a controversial idea right now that you can, um, you know, write stories that you didn't live. Um, and we firmly believe that. We passionately believe that the job of a writer is empathy, that what what we do is put ourselves behind yeah. the eyes of people who who you know, who maybe are like us, but but even better are not like us, who see the world differently. Yeah. We find the shared humanity there. We do the research that we need to do to get it as right as possible. And we open ourselves to the criticism from people who have that lived experience. We really learned that that confidence on Genji's show. And now this is totally different because it's ours. Right. Um, and uh, but yeah, but which which is very brave. And I think like you brought yeah. that bravery to this. And we're that's like great. we're we're always everyone's like, oh you guys write men all the time. We're yeah. like, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, there's something kind men, of subversive and awesome. Men have been writing women for decades. So long. So yeah, it's yeah. totally fine. You show like when you know when you're on a third, fourth season of something you have to write those episodes, right? Like, like you're on like a roller, you know, you're on like a, yeah, it's a factory. Yes. Whereas with the movie, there's no need for the movie to exist unless it's like so great that people mm-hmm. just have to make it. And actors can't say no. So that's a very different thing with film. Like you have to give it a reason to, for being. Point. Yeah. I love that as a point. Really nice. Sadly, we've got to wrap up with you too, because you're fabulous and we could go on for ages. Uh, and, yeah. and on that then, I suppose on Dumb Money and writing a project like that and seeing it come to fruition, what could you tell your younger selves? Well, all those times when you had the issues and or not the issues when films didn't get made and you were sat there disappointed. What, looking back now, what would you say to aspiring writers out there right now when you're writing all those films and they nearly got made and didn't? Because we've all been there and it's horrible. It's all, yeah, it's all cumulative. Yeah, we have two mantras that we come back to all the time. One is it's all cumulative. Jeez. Even that day you spend depressed watching shitty TV, mm. something in that come back. Um, nothing is a waste. And the other is you don't know what you want. Yeah, um, We say like, it all the time. You think you know what you want, but you don't know. Like what this you film, you know, we were at MGM, this giant studio and at Amazon, we were so excited. They were like, we're making this. And then of course, Amazon bought MGM and they put the film in turnaround. The week we were going out before the green light yeah. committee, they didn't and just put it in turnaround, put it in a drawer and tried to make it. Right? It, it, then the film was dead. And actually, you know, Teddy Schwartzman yes. came in and financed it independently. And, yeah. this, and we lost, you know, $12 million off of our budget. And we moved to New Jersey mm-hmm. to shoot it. And everyone had to 
free, but it was like this movie. It was so much better that it was made. It is an independent film. And it was, yeah. be- it was like, the film was better because we had less money and we wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing. Listen. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you both. Oh, so fun. So great, fun. great Yeah, really great question. We can't wait to hear the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and you've written a brilliant movie. Congratulations. Dumb Money is excellent. It's excellent. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And I hope you will hang in London sometime. Become- yeah, definitely. Love that. Right. And WGA Strong. T-shirts yes. abound. Oh. Woohoo! <laughs> Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, girls. Bye. All the best um, to you. Bye. Bye. That was very insightful. We just really got into the the nuts and bolts of collaborating, co-writing, and and just working as a team towards storytelling. Yeah, Lauren and Rebecca were fantastic. They're really enthusiastic. Yeah, um, but really, you know, they're just happily chatting over each other and finishing each other's sentences, <laughs> just like we do <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Except I, I cut those out. I can't hear because we're on one Zoom channel. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, but I, I thought they were both fantastic, and I really like what they said about why you should know everything as much as possible about your topic before diving into write. I know every writer's different, and everyone should be different with it um but I, I liked what they said i think it's important i've gone in to write scripts before when i wasn't fully prepared and i just get stuck and yeah. lost and then i go ah oh, i'm not gonna bother it's not good enough it's whereas if i'd really thought about it and plotted my plot point yeah. it would work much better and also i think you can tell a lot about what people are like to work with based on how well they the people working with them talk about them and mm. you know Aaron and Teddy just were so full of praise for both of those writers uh, and and the process that they brought uh, and their collaboration so I mean there's no higher praise really totally high praise speaking of Teddy this yeah. is Teddy Schwartzman this is the CEO of Black Bear this guy's huge in Hollywood. Um, he's built himself up as well with Black Bear. It's, it's an incredible story. Um, and I thought he was fantastic uh, to talk to. Dom, what will our listeners gain? What's, what they got coming up? Well, I think it's a, it's a really good business side of film uh, discussion, especially. Like learning the business sides of film. <laughs> getting that audience connection and Mm. budgeting advice were some of the useful takeaways yeah he talked about that massively didn't he and how budgets and money and how it can fall through and how it did fall through and what I thought was really interesting and you'll get away from this is how his first film went wrong Mm. went totally wrong and what he learnt from it Um, and, and another big question is what do producers do and he answers this brilliantly um, and, and why the fact the more films you produce uh, the less you freak out mm. and I think this is great advice so all that's coming up for you now yep. with Teddy Schwartzman should we just should we just play VT should we just roll VT roll it that, I mean technically that's an old term for videotape we didn't record on videotape and we don't have a picture so I'm well you, out of date, can use, you can use your imaginations at this point yeah think of dumb money and yep. when this was set yep. right did they have VT then Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Here it is. This is Teddy Schwartzman to round out our bumper dumb money podcast. Sit back, relax. You could say a dumper. Probably don't, actually. You, you probably don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is Teddy, everyone. Enjoy. Hey. Hi, guys. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Teddy. How are you doing? 
I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Awesome. How yeah? about you? Yeah, not bad at all. How's Toronto treating you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a strange market, uh, or not market, but it's a strange festival this year, obviously, without um, without actors, mm-hmm. um, without most writers. Um, but mm. at the same time, there's still some incredible films that are playing here, and um, honored to have done money having premiered last night. Yeah. How, how was that? How did it go? How did it play? How was it being at that premiere? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it's always strange when you have, um, something that you've made go out into the world. Uh, it's always hard to enjoy that first time. Um, but it, it, it appears that audiences really enjoyed it. Um, critics seem to appreciate it. And, um, uh, you know, I'm very happy for, um, for both our writers in, in Lauren Schuker Blum and, and Rebecca Angelo and our incredible director and in Craig Gillespie, um, you know, for all the work that they put in to be able to get it out into the world. Yeah. And you should was it be. always a, a sort of a initial decision that you wanted to go to Toronto or, or was it something that sort of formed uh, based on the, when you finished the film and the scheduling and it sort of came as a later fit? Um, I mean, I think that we, when you, when you, when you green light a film, you generally think about um, when is going to be the time to premiere it for audiences um, this one was a little bit different in that um, my company, Black Bear, greenlit it and financed it. But we also partnered with Sony uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, to be our U.S. distributor pretty early on uh, in the pre-production process, right as we were getting ready to, to start filming. Um, so we were lucky to have their expertise from a marketing and positioning and rollout standpoint. Um, I think we had anticipated that this would be um, a film that could be well positioned as a fall title. And, um, and I think in looking at Venice, Telluride, Toronto, um, Toronto felt like the perfect place to have the world premiere. Um, it's such uh, a great audience. Um, this film is incredibly populist and human mm-hmm. and, um, and is really a, a people's movie. Not to say that it, it won't also appeal to, um, lovers of auteur cinema uh, and critics, but I think that um, it's really made for ordinary people who in this film did extraordinary things. Yeah, we've we've described it as that, haven't we, Tom? It's this really, really wonderful yeah. um, human aspect, David versus Goliath, the small man beats the, you know, the, the big person. And, and we loved this film. We thought it was fantastic. It was really oh. fun. Um, we watched it about three weeks ago um, uh, in London and we just went, yeah, this is great. We can't wait to chat to you. So it was like, let's keep some, let's write some oh. notes so we can remember. Um, <laughs> but we know we loved it. We did thought yeah. the cast was incredible and we felt it had real, real heart and pathos and understanding and we cared yeah. and we wanted Paul Dano's character to win, you know, in that sense. We were like, you know, is he holding? Is he, is he, you know, when it all went down, it was just fascinating. It was yeah. fascinating to watch. Um, oh, thank you. I'm so glad that, that, yeah. that, that you connected to it yeah definitely yeah it's great and did did you find it did you find it was a real audience connection because it's it is such a film that that has so many sort of every man every woman uh type characters in it and it is a very universal uh you know underdog story like how how did the audience sort of get behind it in in the screening did you did you kind of get the feedback you were hoping for in that sense um i mean i think the audience was laughing. The audience was applauding. The audience was 100% with Keith Gill, 
um, you know, and Jenny and Riri and Harmony and um, and feeling that movement, right? And feeling feeling that countercultural screw the man. We're gonna mm-hmm. find a way um, to beat this system that feels like it's been keeping us down for years. Um, obviously, exacerbated by mm. um, you know something like the pandemic that just you know sort of um heightened everything that we were experiencing but um but i think i think that underdog humanist um yet humorous uh sort of mentality really came through and the audience was um you know was hooting and hollering and and loving it and applauding um so you know that's that's not why you know I, we don't you know i can never predict audience reaction um mm. but wonderful thing to see that people that we that we made the movie for that um you know uh regular audiences instead of just a sophisticated financial community in a movie that you know could be sort of um unfairly described as a film about wall street um you know really responded and um and were on the bandwagon so it's yeah gives us great joy Oh, of course, and it should do. So, so you're so you're aware. We're a filmmaking podcast. We're filmmakers. Everyone, pretty much, who listens, care about film, how to make them, what goes into them, and everything like that. You, you, you started off as a producer. You are a producer now. Most people's journey into making films is usually they, you know, they do other jobs. Uh, they they might write something. They might try directing. They might, you know, do the hand at sound, uh, anything, makeup, costume, whatever, to sort of get in the door. Fascinating to know your journey because. You know, Black Bear are a big company now. You know, they're making some amazing movies. Mm. You've made some amazing movies. What was your, before we come back to Don Money, if you don't mind, our listeners would love to know, how how did you do that? What was your journey in? Did you do any of that side or did you just go, I'm going straight to producing? <laughs> um, well, I'll try not to bore your audience. Oh, you um, never will. You but, never will. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, no, I, I bore myself just talking about it. But um, <laughs> Uh, but let's see, we won't go back to my childhood, but, sure, um, sure. Unless you I produce was... movies then, then <laughs> you can start there if you want. You can. I, mean... you know, I, I was, I was. Coming of age story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I was, I was an English major, uh, at university. I only cared about, uh, or I was only good at, to my knowledge, um, story and structure and character. And, um, but I grew up in a world where finance was a little more prominently, uh, on display from, uh, from, from career archetypes. Uh, and I went to a university where everybody wanted to go into finance. So, uh, my first job out of school was actually as a trader, um, on Wall Street trading, um, tech stocks. uh, That's amazing. Really? You know, so, (laughs) so, um, so I, I got a lot of great knowledge that was applicable to understanding what was happening in GameStop, mm-hmm. or uh, in GameStop and in Dumb Money mm-hmm. uh, through that experience. Um, but uh, you know, nine eleven happened. Um, uh, I realized that you know you only live once, and how, how can I actually find a way to follow my dreams and follow my passion, um, but do so without going broke? Yes. So I made. I made the plan to become an entertainment attorney uh, with a 20-year plan uh, of meeting somebody on the creative side in an elevator at 
you know, the Time Warner Center, yeah, who would realize that I had some good ideas yeah. and maybe at that point let me move over to a more senior position on the creative side. Right. Um, so it was a 20-year plan that that was capped off by a chance encounter, um, right. which I realized was not a very good plan in hindsight. Um, <laughs> it's a good plan. I went to it's law school and became a practicing attorney and yeah. didn't end up doing entertainment law despite... Um, that, despite the fact that that's what I studied at law school. <laughs> right. and, okay. um, and then three years into being a lawyer, uh, realized I was once again sort of far away from my dream. So uh, I, uh, I quit being a lawyer mm -hmm. and then um, tried to figure out how do I actually connect with material and find a way to pursue this path. Um, so I started meeting with independent producers, um, started meeting with um, the agencies and understanding that there was a business that went on behind um, the creation of content and the dream mm -hmm. uh, and learning the ecosystem. And um, I, I, to show that I was committed, I took a job as a PA on a film uh, in New York where, uh, you know, it was, uh, I guess you would call it two degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> my job was, you know, to sit in Central Park and to guard a crane that we may or may not use for <laughs> martini uh, yeah. if, if we were lucky enough to get through the other work that day yeah. um, or uh, I was you know stationed on on the roof of um, a building where we were filming on the the sixth floor but I had to tell the construction crew when they couldn't couldn't work and just putting in <laughs> time and letting yeah. people realize that um, that I care job mm. uh, yeah and yeah. then I was lucky enough um, to get a, a job uh, at John Sloss's company, Synetic Media in New York, um, who yeah. was looking for uh, someone to join their their packaging and financing group. So mm -hmm. I joined there and um, learned the ins and outs of independent film production and finance, um, right. represented high net worths, uh, film funds, sovereign wealth funds, um, and represented independent producers who had projects that they just needed to get financed. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a little less than three years. Um, and then said, I'm ready to go make my own mistakes and started Black Bear in 2011 in New York um, with the idea of trying to um, develop and produce and finance um, content that could be best in breed in the genre that it was in. And we've uh, probably failed more times than we've succeeded, but we continue to fight the good fight and um, try and make things that we really believe in, um, backed by um, creators who we think have um, something exceptional to say. That's incredible. So how, how do you how do you take that? Because, wow. uh, you know, we, we talked about starting off in, in story and we've also talked about your financial background. Mm. And I think it's very interesting for, for audience um, because I think a lot of people assume that a producer is just a, a pure finance position. But actually, if the story isn't in place and it's not well structured and, and the writing isn't good and, and those elements aren't in place, you're going to lose the audience and then you're going to have something that isn't going to sell. So. How, how did you kind of develop those two sides and, and figure out and navigate, um, you know, working together so that you became a very complete producer that you are now? This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision. Every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. 
Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Oh, thank you. Um, well, they're completely interconnected. I think um, making a film or producing a film or even financing a film um, rests on certain assumptions that that the blueprint that you have um, is going to be executed to at least um, as good as what's on paper, if not better. And um, that's just not how producing usually works, right? You can mm-hmm. you can look at um, you know the comparison to like real estate development, and you have your blueprints, and you're going to build your building, and these are the designs, and they generally work the way that they need to because the materials are elemental in nature. But in in film, everything is human, right? It's all one decision after another, mm-hmm. one interaction with another. And there are millions of decisions that go into figuring out how to capture something special combined with a whole lot of luck, um, to be honest. Um, And uh, so I think in order to make any sense of your underlying assumptions, you have to look at everything from the lens of what's going to make something the best creative outcome that you can possibly do. How do you incentivize people to actually care about the work that they're doing? Mm -hmm. How do you... Um, how do you structure a budget or a schedule to have enough time um, to make sure that the scenes that really matter are times that your director has, um, you know, the most time to get either a singular performance or to maximize coverage? Um, every decision goes into what actually goes onto that camera and what gets um, fed into the edit. And um, and you just have to care and care about every single detail, to be honest. It's amazing because, like you mentioned, they're your first movie out the gate at Black Bear. And like you said, there was issues, I imagine, more failures you mentioned. But your first movie, you know, you had Zac Efron starring, who was, you know, at the time flying as as he is now, Dennis Quaid, um, Micah Monroe. You know, the list goes on as well. And that's your first movie. You know, everyone would be... (laughs) That was our first movie, but... um... And, um, and I'm still friendly uh, or friends with Ramin Barani, who I just the saw on Telluride yeah. uh, a couple of days ago. Um, but um, but that production was a nightmare. Um, was it? You know, Why? <laughs> we, went into, we went into production on two weeks of prep because um, it all came together at the complete last minute. And mm-hmm. the 
opening scene was at um, the Iowa Speedway where we had 600 background and an entire NASCAR race uh, oh. be filmed. Oh. And we had we either had to go immediately or it wouldn't happen. So uh, we ended up, everybody just closed their eyes and said yes. And we didn't have any accounting for uh, about six weeks. Uh, we went through three first ADs, three seconds, three second seconds, two cops, <laughs> the diners. Oh, um, we agreed to have um, a hiatus in the middle of filming so that Zach Efron could go shoot Paperboy with Lee Daniels, came back with different hair. Oh. Um, I mean, you know, not to <laughs> just like, you know, oh. weather and, um, and just issues that you have. Oh, and, and, yeah. you know, a quarter of the money falling out. Um, uh, you know, before, you know, or we, uh, before we got our first cost report. Um, so needing to sort of work collaboratively and collectively, um, to not impact what Ramian was shooting, um, you know, to not hurt what ended up on film, but still figure out a way to rectify the different departments and get it functioning properly. Um, so that it was, um, logistically sound and fiscally responsible so it was actually it was a great first film to work on because everything's going wrong um you learn what everybody does very quickly you learn everything by failure yes, yes. 100%. yes. that's the only way that you learn was it an immediate decision to sort of get zach efron on board with that because i mean he's he's become known as like a, a very good drama actor but obviously he started in um, as slightly more playful roles. I mean, what was the the sort of process of getting quite a decent star involved in that early on? Well, we're really going quite back. Um, but if memory sorry, if, if memory serves, um, you know, um, Dennis was on the project first, and Dennis Clark, um, yeah. the idea was to um, really find an exceptional role where Zach was showing um, not just that he was a teen sensation. Um, but that he was a mature actor, um, you know, capable of transitioning into dramatic fare. And we were incredibly lucky that he was willing um, to take a risk on an independent film when he was, you know, a massive Disney star at mm -hmm. the time. Um, and I think I think he showed that um, he has incredible chops and, um, you know, he's going to be coming out Definitely. later this year in a film called Iron Claw, um, where I think people will really see... Um, his continued evolution on on the dramatic scale. Mm. I think it's a really interesting sort of producing point as well. Is if you catch an actor that's maybe not known for something, and you you offer mm. them those sort of slightly more, um, you know, something either new or like a prestige drama or something. It's it's something that people don't often think about, but it's a way through to the agents which you wouldn't normally get to. Um, and so you can get a very big actor if you sort of cast them outside of the norms. That's true. I, th I think it's also, yeah, it's recognizing capacity. And also there's a little bit of momentum, if I'm being honest, you know, like we cast um, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, for the imitation team uh, off of Sherlock, right? And we said, my God, he's so incredible in Sherlock. Now he's obviously done a million other things. He was incredible in Ticker Taylor. Um, and um, the Fifth Estate had not yet come out. Um, right. But we thought this is one of the most talented, intriguing actors who you can't take your eyes off of. Yes. Um, yeah. And um, there's a level of, of um, just cerebral talent uh, mixed with dramatic heft that um, while, while a major studio might have wanted to make that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, mm -hmm. we said, 
um, this needs to be a British actor and it should be someone who's perfect for the role. Um, so sometimes you just get lucky and realize that people are incredible and they just need the right opportunities or, or the, or your one small path, uh, on their continued success. Yes. I love that. I remember seeing him in, um, start for 10 before, you know, McAvoy yeah. starring film before either of them were stars oh, yeah. and thinking, oh, these guys are amazing. Dominic Cooper was in that as well as James Corden and all sorts of amazing people were in this movie. Um, so I can see that. And I love that you went, no, we want to, we can see the talent and we can see why we want to put people in certain roles, uh, which will bring us back to dumb money perfectly if I want to make that segue. But I just want to ask real quickly before we come back there, <laughs> did, did making at any price and the issues that happened there put you off? Did it make you not want to go make Broken City and ACOD and all is lost. Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, I think, um, if anything, you know, we were brought into that project at the time, um, with great friends of ours, um, Christine Vachon and Pam Coffin. I mean, Christine Vachon is, and, yeah, legend. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and a wonderful human. Yes. And, um, you know, and I think what they wanted, which is what most producers want at a certain point is money. Right. Um, yeah. which makes sense. We do that in addition to producing. Um, and I think what we were able to do in the process of our involvement in that film is really appreciate and understand what producers do, you know, and get a crash course in producing, um, that, um, set me and our company up in a much better way uh, for the issues that we would have on our next production and the one after. And I think the more films that you do, um, the better you become at producing, the more acclimated you are to, um, problems and to issues, the less dramatic that you, um, encounter or your reaction is when, mm -hmm. when faced adversity because yeah. your muscle memory just grows. Um, so I think there's a, probably a million things that I did on that first film, uh, that I would never do again. Um, as far as how I reacted, how big of an issue is one, uh, it, you know, is one thing versus another. Um, but I think the more experience you have, just the better you become at what you do. Yeah. Love it. So how do we get along to, to Dumb Money? How, how did this project come to you? How did you sort of start putting the nuts and bolts together of, of getting it from an idea and a, a really interesting story into a full blown production with amazing cast and writers? Well, honestly, like we're, we're, we were pretty lucky on this one in that, um, uh, my fellow producer, Aaron Ryder really did much of the heavy lifting before it came to us. Um, it was similar in some fashion to the imitation game where that, that project was, um, a spec script that, um, went to Warner brothers and then Warners didn't want to make it. And then we said, we'll make it and we'll put it together and fully finance it and find distribution and figure out a home and be on set and oversee it. Mm. Um, dumb money is very similar, um, where, um, you know, Aaron had come up with the idea. Um, he had found, uh, Rebecca Angelo and, and Lauren Schuperblum, uh, who had developed a great script and they had set it up at MGM. Um, and then, uh, MGM was bought by Amazon. Um, you know, regime change happened and the project was abandoned. Um, so Aaron came to Black Bear and said, would, you know, cause he and I had known each other for a number of years and said, would you be interested in, in breathing life back into this? Um, and we loved it immediately within 24 hours said yes. Uh, and, um, went and, and, and started putting the pieces in place. Um, you know, we only wanted to make it with Craig Gillespie, um, who was interested in doing it. Um, but also was 
um, post MGM trying to figure out, was this going to be his next project or were there some other things that were taking priority? Um, you know, we wanted to make it with Paul Dano and Seth Rogen and try and put together an ensemble that, um, felt fresh and exciting and diverse, uh, and impactful. Um, so, uh, we set about, you know, putting together a real production plan, um, a real budget, um, getting talent to understand that this was being made, um, you know, outside of the studios, um, uh, and get everybody to buy into doing something that was, uh, you know, a little more run and gun, uh, than, uh, than the way that, you know, a streaming movie might come together that would be a little bit, you know, more bureaucratic. And when you have a sort of, um, you know, production like this, where you've got your own company, you've got a bit of a track record, is it still the same process in terms of how you put together finance? I mean, do, do the do you have to have cast attached when when you're putting together something, or, or is it still a sort of symbiosis? Um, of like raising raising finance in, in terms of like going to how we're going to fund the movie, like do you have to have sure. a cast attached? Or is it a case of, okay, we've got some money, that, that's fine, we assume you're going to get the cast? Sure. I mean, our company uh, finances 95% of the projects that we produce. So um, it's really about when do we start triggering cash flow rather than how do we go raise. Um, and mm. um, on this one, um, you know, the the main element was Craig, if I'm being honest. Um, we love him as a director. I love Titania and mm -hmm. just thought it was like a perfect tonal tightrope. Um, and uh, and uh, him with this material was really what we wanted. And then it was, let's stay on track. Let's try and get this thing uh, done beginning to end in a one-year turnaround, which somehow we ended up accomplishing uh, from that we got involved to now premiering here. Mm -hmm. And um, and let's get some great elements. So I think once we had Paul and once we had Seth, um, we were uh, into cash flowing um, and the rest of the ensemble, we had a feeling would would really want to work you know, with Craig and on such a great material with so many good roles. Mm. You mentioned at the beginning, and it'd be nice mm. to come back to this uh, about budgeting. And at first, you didn't; it wasn't you didn't have enough potentially, or you had to work out the budget as you went. Now, suddenly, on Don Money, you're in a position where you can really think about it, and it'd be really interesting for our audience to know that the thought process behind that, what you've learned for our uh, listeners out there in terms of that side of producing, and and what you wish you'd known back then that you could tell your younger self. Um, I mean, I think if you look back to our first film, so many things were happening so quickly at that time with very little preparation. And, you know, I was looking at schedules for the first time ever. Right. Uh, and, um, I think now you can look through, uh, how a day is laid out and figure out, is this day achievable? Where are we going to focus? Really speak with the filmmaker and try and understand what are the priorities and um, speak with your AD department just to understand, um, you know, is this enough time? Is this too much time? What can we pull up? What's our weather cover? How are we finding a way to um, make every day count? And um, this one was um, a particular challenge because um, one, we were um, still in COVID uh, towards the end of COVID. So we had to sort of focus, uh, the crew on continuing to wear masks and continuing to <laughs> abide by all the protocols. Yes. Um, 
of both testing and just overall safety. Um, but we also had, um, uh, you know, from a, from a structural standpoint, uh, basically different units uh, of the film where um, if you've seen the film, which you have Mm -hmm. um, the actors, despite the fact that all of these forces are sort of coming together and coalescing um, their stories are somewhat independent. And that resulted in a shoot where we would have, you know, a a week and change of Paul Dano and Shailene Woodley. We'd have uh, a three-day unit with Anthony Ramos. You know, we'd have a three-day unit with Seth Rogen, um, a three-day unit, you know, with Mahala and uh, and Talia, and um, not to mention Vincent D'Onofrio and Nick Offerman. So you're sort of making little movies um, over and over, and um, you could sort of sense as you went along, oh, wow, that's great. We nailed that section. We got that section um uh and then this this more than others was a much more interesting journey into figuring out well how's it all going to come together when you actually edit these different units or segments together um but craig is uh, a machine um you know working with kirk baxter who's just a phenomenal editor uh who usually works with fincher um and was getting um you know, was just getting assemblies uh, almost within hours of everything that was coming in and um, and was sharing them with us, uh, you know, for feedback. And frankly, because he was just so excited uh, with reason to be. Yes. Yeah. It's um, if you're if you're putting together a film in that kind of way, I suppose the assembly and the editing is so incredibly important so that you're you're getting a consistent sort of view of what's going on and feeding back into these extra units but uh, yeah it's yeah. been an absolute pleasure teddy it has yeah oh. sadly we've got to let you go but thank you so much for your time and honestly we love dumb money we want people to go watch it we'll be shouting about it because we love these kind of movies they're just brilliant fun really well made and yeah people deserve that and we should get that in cinemas as well so well done congratulations and thank yeah. you for your time Don, Giles, thank you guys. Really, really good. Thanks, Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, there we go. That was the end of our bumper dumb money podcast for mm. you. Wow. Don't say we don't give you anything. Yeah. That was what, what, a, what an assortment. And that was also from the Toronto Film Festival. So, uh,. Mm. Pretty pretty exciting recording conditions as well. That's why it's so yes, full of full of energy and, and excitement and uh, <laughs> and, and echoey rooms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, there was that, but uh, it worked really well. That's just thank from you us. so much. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So thank you very much to DDAPR for setting that up, which actually stands for Dumb Money Does Announcements. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for listening if you have liked this podcast go on to imdb give us a rating there go on to spotify and to to apple and if you haven't already click the plus button so you get this strange inbox and write a lovely review why not you got this um it would mean the world to us and it helps us go up the rankings and it helps more people listen to this and helps more people learn about making films and so they don't make the same mistakes we made when we first started exactly um yeah coming up for you next week we have another big one we do have a huge one yeah. we have because um, we have flora and son director john carney who also directed the oscar winning once um yeah. and he sits down for a brilliant chat with us that is next week on the filmmakers podcast next tuesday ladies and gentlemen boys and girls yeah um, more filmmaking knowledge for you into your eardrums hmm 
Um, right, thank you so much for listening. Go out there, make your films, and make it happen. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty to send the stocks back down. Way like it. Dumb Money is out in cinema now. Go watch it. It's ace. It's really fun. You're gonna have a fun night out. Uh, it makes you want to stand up and cheer. Dumb, dumb, believable. Yes, a little bit like you. Yes. You're dumb believable. <laughs> and this movie is dumb believable. We will see you all next Tuesday, everyone, for John Carney. Uh, but for now, take care. Go make your films. <laughs> Bye, Dom. You can spell him to John Johnny with a solid. <laughs> 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 take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs>